That, a movies podcast where some friends from Philadelphia come together to talk about all things movies. I am joined by my co-hosts, Dave, Sam, and Christine, and today we are continuing our desert theme and get ready for things to get sandy and hot. But before we dive into sandy and hot, or maybe that leads to what you guys have been watching. Has anybody been watching anything sandy or hot unrelated to the podcast or just kind of watching anything cool or interesting or terrible in general? I recently watched a very intriguing movie. I had never heard of this. And probably if someone described it, I would not watch it. But I would encourage anyone who's curious to watch it. Uh, It's called The Final Cut, starring Robin Williams. And it's a sci-fi movie from 2004. It's gotten, it got terrible reviews. It has like 37% on Rotten. But I, it definitely has flaws, but I thoroughly enjoyed this movie and was really fascinated by the premise. Robin Williams plays a, his job, he's called a cutter, and he creates films for funerals that are called rememories. Basically, uh, this world, people volunteer, or people have implants in their brain that records everything that they see their entire lives. And Robin Williams' job is to edit their life into a rememory that conveys all of the best moments of someone's life, like a highlight reel, essentially. But part of the elements of his job are to witness the truly awful things that people have both witnessed and done themselves. And his job is still to just create a montage that is highlight that are highlights and sort of the ideal vision of someone's life. And it turns into kind of a thriller as he's cutting something, he witnesses something that he's like, it completely upturns his like feelings about himself and his job and his whole purpose. Cause he really takes his job seriously and it completely dismantles his uh, sense of self. And it just, I mean, it, once again, it's not perfect. But if you're intrigued, I would highly recommend watching this movie. I had never heard of it. It was never on my radar, but a little unknown gem that was critically panned. So maybe people will reassess it. It's it's like not about like, it's about surveillance, but it's like about sort of also like voyeurism, like just all cool themes I'd recommend. Yeah, I've seen that movie before. It's interesting. And I, yeah, I'd agree flawed but um yeah it's interesting um it is sort of like a uh a sci-fi a half-baked sci-fi version of brian de palma's blowout a little bit yes totally it, but I it is like those cool. are kindred spirits but i haven't seen anything quite like it before maybe mm-hmm. i mean you know instead of sound it's sight and blowout is definitely a sibling movie but i thought robin Williams' performance was good there's some real ham-fisted dialogue and bad performances but Still, I'd recommend. Sounds a little Black Mirror-y. That's about right. Yeah. Uh, I'm rounding the bases on another rewatch of The Sopranos. I have been watching it with my housemate who had never seen it. Uh, He's a little younger, so we are um, all caught up. We are up to the last episode, Made in America, which is 
a doozy of an episode if you've seen the show. Uh, so that's going to be interesting. I think we're probably going to round the corner and uh, and finish it up tomorrow night. And uh, I am very much anticipating his reaction to the end of the series. Nice. Dave, I don't think, I don't if we've talked about it, it was probably years ago, but how do you feel about the ending? Ending? Like, where did you land? And have you kind of thoughts changed? Have we all seen this show? No, but I'm aware. Like, okay, yeah, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna can, say, I'm not gonna say then. But you um, can spoil anything. I mean, I don't no, 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 it's it. it's too precious. Um, <laughs> I, I uh, while I was watching it with um, my uh, girlfriend in high school and her family, uh, this was in the college though, and uh, every Sunday when available, we would go over to her folks' house and watch the premiere. So we were all very excited. Had to do this for years. It was the final episode. We we're all very jazzed, and it gets to the ending, and the episode ends the way it does credits come up and everyone in the room was vocally furious and i had to quietly i had to kind of quietly sit there like being like i think that was really great and i still think it's great i love the ending of the show i don't know how else you end it cool i was just curious to hear your hot take on it yeah a fan a fan of the ending i like it sam have you seen anything kind of interesting lately or more more of the mummy perhaps (laughs) Um, I started watching Over the Garden Wall. I haven't finished it yet, but I love it. It is so sweet and like exactly right up my alley. Um, there's one episode that I just fucking loved. It was the, it's the second episode and I, and it, it was great. The, the, the sense of humor is right where it should be. Um, and there's like a shit ton of really amazing actors in it. Um, like Elijah Wood and Christopher Lloyd. So Tim Curry, uh, Tim Curry. I haven't gotten that far yet. That's the, uh, that's the thing. John Cleese. So it's really great. I love it. Nice. I know we have. Quite a few friends who love that show, uh, but I haven't seen it yet. But add that to another one, another friend who recommends that show. I've watched the new Netflix um, documentary, Our Father, about the Indiana um, infertility specialist who used his own semen to inseminate probably hundreds of women uh, unknowingly. And so it was super interesting. I was very thankful. It was just like a 90 minute documentary and not like a 12 part, you know, episodic thing i think 90 minutes is perfect it was kind of it's when the super moon like eclipse thing was happening so we'd go outside every 20 minutes and see the eclipse happening get some fresh air and then go back and do another like 30 minutes uh it was super interesting horribly depressing uh, but also kind of inspiring like the women who are really and um the men who are trying to like reclaim their identity and take this bastard to just you know find some sense of justice in this whole like fucked up situation it's funny you say bastard. Uh, really great episode of uh, a podcast I love called Behind the Bastards that uh, explores terrible people. And they did an episode on this. It was pretty interesting. I think it's wild that only Indiana has a law that pr- like explicitly prevents someone from doing this. No federal laws. I don't think any other states. It, that's mm-hmm. what it seemed to imply at the end. So pretty wild. It's called Our Father. Definitely recommend. Um, but very sad. <laughs> Well, without further ado, let's get into my pick for Desert Movies. Uh, This has been a film that I was hotly anticipating for a long time and one that I uh, talked a lot about on a previous episode. Uh, In the chat, we have further ado. Yes, yes, without further ado. Uh, We're talking about Denis Villeneuve's Dune. Go back to our awards episode just a few months ago um, where I talk 
quite a bit about why I love Dune and why I thought it should have won a ton of awards. And it did win quite a few Oscars. Uh, but we're doing a deep dive into the second attempt to make a movie of Frank Herbert's classic sci-fi novel. Um, this movie is epic. I also think it's symphonic, kind of bloated, and strangely structured. But overall, I'm an absolute huge fan of Dune. I got the 4K Blu-ray. I watched it on my new PS5, on my new 4K TV. These things all kind of happened to come together quite perfectly. So I saw it in theaters, watched it at home, and it was cool to be, oh, wow, 4K really kind of is all that lives up to be, in my opinion. Uh, but... Before we go any further, I want to check in with the crew about what are you, what's your relationship to Dune? Has anybody read the book? Have you seen David Lynch's interesting take on the work, uh, his film uh, a couple decades ago? And have you seen this uh, Denis News new attempt? What's your relationship with Dune? Well, I had seen the Lynch uh, version. Uh, I do like that movie. I think it is... Uh... It's not great. It's pretty, uh, pretty flawed movie, but it's pretty interesting uh, in a lot of ways stylistically. Even though Lynch, I think, has largely considered it a failure, and that largely because of like time constraints in the studio, all sorts of things. There's also the unsung uh, Jordorowski's Dune, that was the uh, original conception for it, that an abandoned film project that sounds like it would have been relatively spectacular uh, if you've seen a documentary about it. But uh, we didn't get that. Instead, because of that, we got Alien in some ways. So. Uh, I'm okay with that not existing in the end. Went to uh, see this one with pretty high expectations, I suppose, although it was a little bit hesitant. I thought it looked a little bit sallow. And um, I guess by contrast to to um, to Lynch's Dune, a little less like colorful and a little less vibrant and interesting aesthetically, but uh, I was proven wrong. Uh, upon seeing the film, I found it to be pretty spectacular. The first time I saw it, this is the second time I've seen it, and I suppose... I was a little more wowed by it the first time around, but still uh, enjoyed the ride the second time through. Yeah, this was definitely when they say made for the big screen. Um, Dune for sure feels made for the big screen. Uh, Sam or Christine? Yeah, I think my journey with this is kind of similar to Dave. I have wa- I've seen David Lynch's Dune, uh, watched it within the past year, had never seen it, and was like, okay. It was funny, the moment the new Dune came out, it was like, okay, going to watch the old Dune. And it took me like like 10 months after the release of the new Dune for me to actually watch it on HBO, but finally did. Really enjoyed it a lot. I was kind of intrigued by Lynch's Dune. It was kind of just so wonky and bizarre. And there's the story, the way that he chooses to tell the story is kind of all over the place, that it is intriguing in that way. And uh, quite... Uh, unique. And I think Villeneuve's sort of narrative structure is, and and sort of it's edited more straightforward, just huge sweeping shots. The cinematography is beautiful. Uh, Greg Frazier, who I think also did the Batman, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, But every frame Mm -hmm. is absolutely gorgeous. And so it was really just a movie to just soak up and uh, let it take over me in the in a multi-sensory way. And that's really how I experienced it. I also thought, while, Connor, you say bloated, and I think in many ways I would gr- agree, I thought it was a daring and ultimately good choice to split it into two parts. I Because I had already known what the full story is, it didn't feel like an arbitrary ending. I, I When it came out, I had heard, oh, like it suddenly 
ends, but having a sense of where it was going, I was like, this makes sense as a first chapter. I'm glad you brought that up, Christine, because yeah, this is part one of a story. This is actually um, Warner Brothers kind of based the deal with Villeneuve off this movie with uh, it chapters one and two. So this was kind of like that, at least the production, wise, you know, uh, contract wise, that movie laid the groundwork for Villeneuve's pitch for Dune. And he said he'd only do it if he could do it in two parts, because this is I mean, Dune the book is a mammoth novel. Um, I read it before the film came out. I actually finished it the day that they announced that Dune was going to be delayed seven months. I finished I it that. like <laughs> yeah, I finished it like a week before the movie or uh, maybe like a month before the movie was supposed to be released in like March or April. And then I was going to text my friend, Hey, I just finished Dune, open my phone notification delayed to October. <laughs> so that was pretty funny. Uh, Sam have, was this your first time seeing um, Deneville news Dune or do you have any kind of familiarity with the property before? Oh, goddamn thing about this movie um, or David Lynch's version. And I somehow avoided every single one of you talking about this, both like on a podcast and at work. I, I, I started watching this movie and I was like, all I know is, is that Timothy Chalamet, Oscar Isaac are in it and Zendaya. And that was it. I don't know how he managed it, but I certainly did. I'm glad that I waited so long to watch this. Um, I think that if I would have seen this movie like five or six years ago, I would have had a very different opinion of it. So it's for the, for the best. Interesting. I can't wait to unpack those feelings as we go on. Um, so some experience with Dune, some new perspectives, really excited to dive deep into what I think, in my opinion, is one of my favorite movies um, of the past couple of years. But before we go in, let me just give a brief overview of what is the New Dune, as we've been calling it. The New Dune was released on October 22nd, 2021, directed by Denis Villeneuve. His name has come up quite a few times on the podcast. Uh, Sicario, Prisoners, Blade Runner 2049. We have not talked about those movies. Oh, and of course, Arrival. But his name has come up quite a bit. Christine, I know you're also, we talked about him. We have did we do, covered a Villeneuve movie? We did do uh, Blade Runner 2049, didn't we? No. We did, we, oh, we did an OG. Oh, right. Blade we Runner. did Blade Runner and then and Blade I Runner 2049. Probably ran my mouth about the new one as well. So in my mind, we had covered it because I spent a lot of time thinking about it. Okay, good. Thank you for the correction. <laughs> <laughs> so definitely one of my favorite directors working right now. Uh, this was a huge passion project for him. Um, he's just so amazing in so many interviews uh, on a lot of his movies, but there's a lot of really great online interviews and content about him making Dune. Uh, the screenplay was by John Sapathis, uh, also Denis Villeneuve and Eric Roth, uh, based on Frank Herbert's novel Dune. Uh, we've already mentioned a few names, but starring Timothy Chalamet, old school fans of the podcast might remember when I were, would call him Timothée Crouton. Um, as the lead Paul Atreides uh, Rebecca Ferguson also stars as his mom Lady Jessica Oscar Isaac stars as the Duke Leto Atreides Josh Brolin as Gurney Halleck Stellan Skarsgård who gives a really interesting performance as the Baron Harkonnen you got Dave Bautista Zendaya Jason Momoa Javier Bardem and so many other names uh, cinematography was done by Greg Frazier. He did do the Batman. Uh, film was edited by Joe Walker. And music done by Hans Zimmer. Um, it was interesting going back a second time because I feel like 
the music just really carries a lot of this movie. Um, and I think a mostly really good and really powerful way. Uh, the budget was $165 million just for this part one, because part two was not fully confirmed until a few weeks after the movie came out, because under the pretty terrible pandemic circumstances, Dune made $400 million, the global box office. Maybe in years past, that would have been closer to like $800 million, but... We'll never know. But for a pandemic-related movie, $400 million, um, certainly is not too shabby. So I thought it would be kind of, I don't know, there's so many different approaches, I think, that we could take when talking about Dune. And I thought it would be interesting to kind of focus on the characters and their journey as we went through. And then I think that would really weave in a lot of you know, talking about the production design, visual effects, music, etc. But let me just give a quick synopsis before we dive deep into House Atreides, the Harkonnens, Arrakis, the Fremen. Etc. So Dune follows the coming of age story of a young boy named Paul Atreides, whose family is essentially given control of the desert planet Arrakis, also called Dune, which is the only place in the entire universe where one can find the spice melange. It is uh, the spice is like a psychotropic sandy, dusty kind of drug that allows, you know, opening of the third eye and is really the only way to allow for faster than life travel, uh, faster than light travel, because the Space Navigation Guild can use it to see into the future and to navigate in and around stars. We don't have to get much deeper than that. There's thousands of pages of lore about spice, but essentially it's the most coveted substance in the universe. And uh, the emperor is transitioning, you know, transferring Arrakis from the Harkonnens or the evil bad guy house to house Atreides, the noble house uh, that ultimately is a trap. And uh, house Atreides and Paul are tested um, through many trials and tribulations. And Paul learns that, his destiny is more than what he thought it was back on his home planet of Caladan. So with that all laid out, just off at the top of my head, <laughs> let's dive into Timothy Chalamet, uh, an up-and-coming actor, I guess. But I feel like he's been in so many projects lately that he is firmly established he's up, as... Yeah. He's, he's pretty up, up and up. <laughs> One of my... I love uh, his origin story is that he started on YouTube as an Xbox 360 controller mod person like modding xbox 360 controllers on youtube that's really how he got his first kind of like on camera start and like kind of an initial following there so an interesting like new generation of actors coming up in like more of a digital space like kind of new avenues of testing and trying things out and being recognized so i don't know exactly his exact journey but for a long time as a young man as a young child he was a, a xbox 360 controller modder on youtube which i think is pretty great I think Paul is a Dune is such a cold world. I guess I'll start with that. It's a sci-fi world. It's this is the far future, tens of thousands of years in the future. And so I think anybody when adapting Dune has a really difficult task ahead of them of adapting this work, having the relationships feel warm genuine and authentic. Um, I think there were some challenges with David Lynch's version with that, but in some ways, 
But this is not about David Lynch's Dune. We're focusing on Denis Villeneuve's Dune. And I think Timothy Chalamet was great casting as Paul of this young man entering adulthood, learning about responsibilities of leading a house, leading a great house of a planet. Um, And what do you guys think of Timothy Chalamet's performance of this kind of stereotypical coming of age person, this role that really laid the groundwork for Luke Skywalker in a lot of ways for George Lucas? I looked up, uh, because I would like to just briefly note Lynch's Dune and Kyle MacLachlan who plays Paul. Uh, and I felt like his performance aged him up. Like he didn't feel like a very convincing sort of young son whose first journey outside of his home, you know, leads into the story. It felt like he was more of a, like a middle-aged Paul. And then I was like, how old was Kyle McLaughlin when he started in Joel Dune? And I, he was about mid twenties, about 25 around Chalamet's age. So I think it's a testament to Chalamet's performance in, in my opinion, um, capturing this sort of like young, sort of not naivete, but sort of this wide-eyed idealism that, that ultimately gets informed by the more complicated world he exists in once, you know, he goes through a bunch of trials and tribulations. I personally rolled my eyes when I heard that fucking Timothy Chalamet was starring in it. Cause I'm like, he's gotten every single role in every movie that's come out in the past five years. But I, I thought he really suited the role nicely. Yeah. I would have to agree. I love that. I think what's tough about casting Paul is you need someone who kind of looks very youthful and feels youthful and very quickly you see kind of become a man and make adults choices and big big politicking happening around him and having to struggle to survive. And I think Chalamet plays that the beginning of the movie, I think really well. And then as the film goes on, that you really see him transform into this mythological Messiah type figure or starting to go on that journey. Yeah. He comes across, I mean, within the the context of the story, very much as a vessel character, as like an insert self protagonist, as far as the, the central like related emotion or audience surrogate emotion. And does a great job of of embodying that role as far as like it's, you know, uh, it's function, but also brings a lot of interesting and subtle depth to it. I think, you know, he's he is a v- our vehicle character, but he remains uh, a pronounced character and a developed character and a character that, as you said, yeah, definitely has an arc and a journey even within the first part of this. Chalamet, I think, is a pretty impressive actor. I've seen him in movies I haven't liked and movies I have liked, and he normally sticks the landing either way. So I think it was a pretty good casting, and I think he pulls off the role really well and is uh, pretty well suited as uh, a sci-fi, a, y- a young sci-fi protagonist. Um, he's he's not like say like a Mark Hamill per, per se, but he he brings an interesting spin to it that has a lot of depth. Something that I liked so much about this movie is how real the relationships actually felt between each character, mm-hmm. particularly when it comes to Paul v. everyone else. And um, I think that Chalamet just has like this natural, endearing charisma. You see him like really activated in every movie that it is just, it's so endearing and you can really see how he uses it to, to create these really like nice, sweet, tender relationships, even with people who are like teaching him how to fight like Duncan Idaho. Right. Um, And those are, those are relationships are just really great. Yeah. I think the rewatching it, the writing is not always my favorite, but I think it, cause there's, this movie has to cover so much in almost like 
three hours of one half of a story. So it really has to move at a fast pace. And I'm glad that they took a lot of time to establish the Atreides family, kind of how they interwork with each other, because Villeneuve really had no time to establish all of this because so much of the machinations around going from Kaladin to Arrakis and then all the things that happen on Arrakis. The plot just demands so much of everybody. Um, so I think it's great that Villeneuve and team were able to slip in lots of really great character moments. That's sort of an interesting thing. My initial criticism of the film, I think, was that it it doesn't allow for a lot of character development because we are covering so much ground and so much like culture and like establishing setting foundation and stuff. But um, yeah, it, it's there in, in some quiet ways. I, I would have appreciated maybe a little bit more of it, but it's not to say that it doesn't have that. Yeah, and I think for as loud, actually loud as this movie can be, um, it finds a lot of really awesome, quiet, um, tender moments. And one of them, one of my, I think, standout scenes in the movie is between the next character we're going to talk about, uh, Duke Leto Atreides, played by Oscar Isaac, who Sam, you talked about last week, certainly has been having a moment. Uh, over the past couple of years, um, certainly a hot up and coming actor now. Um, and so he plays his father. And I think Duke Leto is a really, I think, tough role. I think a lot of these roles are kind of really hard because so much just has to happen to these characters. And there's such a great and tender scene between Oscar Isaac and Timothy Chalamet of essentially they're about to leave Caliban. They're at the kind of like ancestral burial ground for their the Atreides family. And Leto says to his son, like, you know, the call of the leadership, like those need to be, you know, a real leader is one who's called to action. And if you decide to like not answer that call, like you're still my son. It's like a really tender scene that I think this movie peppered in quite a bit in the first half, uh, which I think was really nice. But any thoughts on the kind of stoic but tender Duke Leto Atreides? It's also about the phrasing specifically, he said, because it was like, you're, you'll still be exactly what I wanted you to be or what I need you to be, which is my son. And I was like, damn. Um, And, you know, it's, it's funny that you say stoic because I, I see that, but I also like wouldn't have pegged him that way. And I don't know if it's just because it's Oscar Isaac. And I feel like there's always more to Oscar than just like stoicism. But, um, you know, I was really, really impressed like the whole time. I mean, he's a great actor. And like we knew this before that. I knew, well, I knew this before that. But this really showed me, you know, just how his depth really is. And there's one moment where he laughs um, when they're actually talking about his father and I was just like not expecting it. And it was was, like, so great. Like what a good moment. Um, I'll also say that him in this uniform, all versions of it made me absolutely feral. I was like, I don't know what's going on, but I was like ready to throw my remote across the room because it was just a lot for me to handle. So uh, great casting. Great actor. And that big beard. Oh, my God. Any other thoughts on Duke Leto, especially kind of at the kind of first half, the beginning of this movie? It's a strong performance. Yeah. Like like I said, you know, before uh, many times, I guess this, you know, this isn't the first time Isaac has come up. He, uh, like Chalamet, uh, generally sticks the landing, does a good job, fits in well, and does a good job playing this a little bit more reserved, a little bit more uh, contemplative, a little bit more distanced. And I think that that really suits the character given their role within the film. But that that having been said, he's not uh, unexpressive 
he's uh, he definitely has dimensionality, but is calculating, I guess, or or at least that's how it's expressed, which is it's a good call for this character. Yeah, and I think there's lots of great moments of him showing his humanity and caring for people. Like when he's observing the spice harvesting and he's like, no, we're going to save these people and not just let them die. I think a lot of that stuff could feel very kind of like ham fisted, but I think Oscar Isaac and the direction and the team all together um, really pull off to make it feel like genuine, even though these moments have to be brief and have to move fast. Um, I think everybody was on their A game and genuinely like conveying these truths about these characters without having it feel terribly surface level. A real quick note also, uh, you know, obviously, I, I would imagine this goes without saying, and it's probably like tickling the back of all of our throats right now. But, um, you know, uh, House Atreides, uh, interesting family, uh, interesting role that they've been shifted into where they are overseeing now, uh, suddenly, after all these years, overseeing spice production and are, are being given this platform. And their interest in in striking a, a, a kind of bond with the Fremen and the people of Arrakis but you know, there's there's no such thing as a benevolent colonizer. Uh, I think he's he's a good character, and they're interesting characters. But uh, as I think this movie is suggesting by the end, uh, they are not necessarily uh, an uncorruptible good or uh, or representative of something uh, that is wholly in the interest of the people they're working with. Also, I just want to say, like, I'm sure this is going to come up a lot. The similarities between this and Star Wars is just is there the whole time um but nothing as like in your face for me as so rise of skywalker made poe um a spice runner before he was a, a resistance pilot and this whole arrakis is all about spice i was like jesus fuck christ um it's well, not for nothing. There... Star Wars stole all of that from. Oh, Dune. I know. And I mean, <laughs> the, spice, the spice thing doesn't happen until fucking uh, Rise of Skywalker in 2019. But there's a mention there of spice in mm-hmm. A New, New Hope. Hope. <laughs> it's like where it's on the tip of my tongue. There's a there's a spice mention, and that was the first right. time oh, I've yeah. ever been clued uh, clued into the similarities. And I was looking it up, and when when A New Hope came out. There were a lot of writers that were like, interesting, sounds like Lucas took a lot from Herbert. And apparently Frank Herbert was like reading about Star Wars and like somebody who he works with was like, so are you going to say anything? And Herbert was like, whatever. <laughs> it's like, you know, in, in, in his thing, he's got the voice. But in my version, I, I, I'm just going to call it a Jedi mind trick. And it's kind of the same thing, but I, I put my stamp on it. So it's mine now. Um I, I say all this. I, I love I love the original Star Wars trilogy. I'm not trying to knock it for borrowing from things because then you get Kurosawa and all sorts of other stuff. And you might hear us talk about this later. Uh, but but yeah, I mention it only because I saw so many reviews of people like pissing and moaning, being like, "This is just a rip off of Star Wars," and it's like, I actually, have it backwards. Yeah, there are many properties that have cribbed or straight up stolen from Dune, which I think makes it such an interesting thing that's being made anew in 2021. Uh, that kind of now we're able to look back over all these different sci-fi properties that have borrowed um, from Dune. And I think talking about the Force and the voice leads us to a really important character, Lady Jessica, played by the amazing Rebecca Ferguson. I think also perfect casting for this role. She conveys um, a lot of worry over her son, 
a lot of love and tender and support kind of gets dragged along in the back half of the movie without a whole lot to do, but that's just kind of how it is in the book too. So it's kind of tough to like, how much can we fit kind of this character into just the back half of the first part? But I think especially she really shines, um, on Kaladin, especially as it relates to her Bene Gesserit order, this kind of mystical order of prophets who can control people with their voices, with certain intonations. The books get into the whole thing of how it works, but essentially by using a sort of correct kind of pitch and a forceful attitude and some other things, you can will somebody to do what you want them to do, which we see in some pretty amazing ways later in the movie. And there's a great, I love the movie opens basically with uh, Lady Jessica testing Paul into using the voice. And this movie does such a great job of setting up visual cues. Audio cues and the visual language of the movie is so strong. And I think a lot of it relates to Lady Jessica and the Bennett Jesuit order. So thoughts on Rebecca Ferguson and this role as Lady Jessica? Um, I think that she, uh, that Rebecca Ferguson and Timothy Chalamet have a really wonderful dynamic in their in conveyed through their performances as mother and son. I also was thinking just now, you don't get too many sci-fi adventure movies or really many movies at all that depict a long journey that a mother and a child or like, yeah, a mother and a child make together and how that transforms their relationship. I feel like a lot of times, especially action films or big story sci-fis, depict like a departure from the parents. So in Star Wars, you really have leaving the family home and going on a journey. But in this movie, it's certainly the father dies, but what happens when both a son and a mother go on a journey together and work, like have to work out their own shit, <laughs> like that they, that the tension, familial tensions between that exist between them, but also uh, are exploring a world and the, their own relationships over the course of a film. I, I feel like I can't really off the top of my head think about something that follows that sort of similar uh, family like narrative. Yeah, she she's pretty great in this. I mean, she it's a strange it's a strange almost like <clears throat> contradictory balance of like it's a character that within the story doesn't seem to have uh, in the present circumstances and what we're seeing unfold doesn't seem to have a whole lot of agency most of the time, but does make some meaningful impacts in the story here and there. But, but it's also a very strong character uh, at the same time, um, which is, is an interesting kind of like balance. And it, it, there is also an element where she is a bit of like almost a double agent to a degree, not in a malicious way, but she represents both the Bene Gesserit's interests of um, siring a, uh, a sort of like, you know, a, pr a prophetic, the one, the special, uh, special offspring, while also remaining true to her husband and his aims as the uh, the leader of um, of House Atreides. So she's she's got a lot to carry this character and is given things to do. But yeah, ultimately, I think resonates uh, or, or, or um, radiates a kind of stoicism, but but also still being a harrowing emotional uh, portrayal. So uh, pretty great. And I think digging into that backstory is super fascinating because she was meant, uh, so the Bene Gesserit, we meet the Reverend Mother, who is like the top dog of the Bene Gesserit. She's the truthsayer for the emperor himself. Charlotte Ooh, Rampling. Going... She was yeah. uh, awesome in all sorts of stuff. The Verdict, Zardoz, great actress. Such a great pick to be this 
spooky older lady witchy kind of role. And so she serves the emperor basically as main truthsayer, who's going to be played by Christopher Walken in the sequel. Um, that'd be interesting to see, uh, to say the least. And so she, through her, we reveal that the Benny Gesserit, their game is played in centuries where they are trying to uh, birth the Kwisatch Haderach. I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, different movies, I think, say it different ways. Um, and so trying to birth this chosen one and Lady Jessica was supposed to give birth to a girl. Benny Gesserit can control the gender of their baby. Um, at conception or sometime during. And so she went against the plan for the love that she has for Duke Leto to um, have a son that can inherit the Atreides throne. So while we don't see that action, I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff happening within Lady Jessica before the movie starts that has huge ramifications for the movie, the plot, and the whole universe of Dune. So she's like a really pivotal character in the story. And the Bene Gesserit are awesome as like these like the sci-fi like witch order almost with like these extended like head head pieces that like make them like almost like taller and like like obscures their faces and everything. Mm-hmm. It's it's just got such a great aesthetic and makes it so initially menacing while also, you know, explaining their ends in a way that makes them more more than just like like a Sith force. Like there, there's a lot of texture and a lot of dynamism and a lot of, um, uh, a lot of internal conflict to like what they're, what they're trying to do, how they're impacting things and how their grand machinations intersect with like the bureaucracy and maintenance of this galaxy. It's very cool. And very like a, like a shadowy kind of like, like kind of like a shadow force. Uh, one quick note. Is the, I mean, the costume design throughout this movie is absolutely phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that you use the word shadow to articulate like kind of more of their like vibe. Uh, but the costumes themselves within the, like a lot of the frames of the movie create beautiful angles, like so many beautiful like headpieces and the way that everything is draped and angled, it creates beautiful shadows and lines in every single, well, most every frame. Uh, and I would love to look up who the costume designer for, for this movie was because it's really, really beautiful across the board. Yeah, according to IMDb, costume design was uh, Robert Morgan and Jacqueline West. And I, I'm so happy that we're talking about the costuming because this is such an amazing element of this movie, how intricate and detailed Villeneuve and team brought um, the world of Dune to cinema, to, to theaters. To the, It's just incredible how it feels. It's always interesting going back to reading like sci-fi that was written like 50, 60 years ago of like, this is what the future would look like from the 1960s. Um, and so it's this really interesting mixture of like, analog technology, which has its own reasoning in the universe of why there's no computers, you know, no AI, because that was all banned, because there's a huge civil war. And so I think it's this really great texture, like a lot of like the original Star Wars, a lived in universe, but yet feeling just, you know, many sci-fi elements that make it feel otherworldly. Um, I think the armor just looks so cool and it looks like something that people would wear and could wear. Like not every, you know, a goal of the production was not to green screen everything to hell and make all these, um, you know, CGI characters to have it feel really real and grounded. And Villeneuve wanted to go back to the book. He said he liked, you know, appreciated Lynch's version, but really used Herbert's novel as the Bible 
for going to this and basing every decision off of, you know, and inspired by the original work. Um, and I think that also transitions to the set design as well. Every place, every vehicle feels so unique. Um, I love the design of all of the spaceships that we see, um, whether the ones that fly through space or the ones like the ornithopters on um, Arrakis itself, but just such a thoroughly designed world. And apparently there were hundreds of versions of what the different planets would look like and the different set designs. They spent three years on what the sandworms would look like. So really thorough production design. And so any kind of thoughts, like, did you guys have like a favorite look, costume look, location, um, just kind of thoughts in general on the look of Dune? I love how considered everything is. Um, yeah, this this production team is out of this world, no pun intended. They're really creating such a like a richness and texture and depth to all these different cultures and uh, uh, competing forces. Like you could feel history radiating from the set design, from the costuming, from uh, the differences of technology. You can really feel that this is an extremely diverse, uh, culturally and like historically diverse fictional sci-fi universe. And that that is, I think, the biggest charm of this movie. It, it, it really kind of introduces the scale of, of uh, how all of these different cultures and societies function within the broader whole of this narrative and this galaxy, um, which is incredible. My personal favorite are probably the uh, the administrators of the Emperor, which is like this like Hellraiser slash Event Horizon world where they're just like, it seems like hundreds of like nude crucified people whose blood is being drained from a pyramid while someone in the background just speaks in a way that is, which is so awesome. I really love that bit. Yeah, you're talking about the um, Sadukar. Mm-hmm. On, I think it's the Secunda Sundi or uh, sort of like the, the Sadukar, the like the, the Emperor's Legion. Um, and they are brutal. Yeah, every culture feels so distinct and everything so meticulously yeah, thought about. It's hard to believe that they were able to pull it off and have it look as amazing as it does. And I think perspective too plays into a lot of that as well. If you kind of, you get a sense of how enormous all these vessels and buildings are in relation to the size of the characters, like all of it feels exactly right. The scale stuff's insane. And I do have more thoughts on that for later, but yeah, as as far as like helping a viewer navigate, especially someone who wasn't familiar with like the, the story and like the lore of this, the differences in that kind of like set design, costume design, and everything really help you navigate the cultures of this world visually, which is a really smart choice. Yeah, I mean, the the first planet where House Atreides is, is so beautiful. I just want to live there. And then the sand, oh my God, the way that the spice mix in with the sand, it's, it's gorgeous. Um, and as far as like costuming goes, there's this one outfit that Lady Jessica wears when they land and it's the gold and the headdress that I was like, where do I get me one of those? Because it is like beyond gorgeous. The jewels on like, that's just like, like are like a jeweled net or or a veil on her face are gorgeous. I'm so Uh glad you brought that up, Sam. Oh my God. And then 
every single thing that Oscar Isaac wore had me, like I said, literally feral. The the armor in particular, I was like, enough! You know, it was almost too much. Oh, and Connor, you mentioned the sandworms. Um, real quick, everything about this movie is the same, except the sandworms are replaced by the sandworms from Beetlejuice. <laughs> that would be amazing. So it's like these grand insane spectacle driven like spaceships and everything else and then all of a sudden it's just a claymation worm that comes <laughs> can we all just we can we also just have michael keaton laughing in this like a small <laughs> little beetlejuice michael keaton in the like corner of every frame just like cackling i think would really transform dune in an amazing way Bene Gesserit, Bene Gesserit, Bene Gesserit. oh no now i gotta marry them <laughs> i think this is the crossover we need to make happen I think if I had to just call out one favorite outfit, it's um, Timothy Chalamet as he's leaving Caladan and like walking around. He has like the jacket with like the pop collar, the long sleeves. Like he's looking, looking fresh. It is a little bit though. And this uh, tying back, I don't know if they intended for this, but tying back to my like a uh, quote unquote benevolent colonizer kind of thing. It does have kind of a Hugo Boss vibe. <laughs> it is looking stylish in that kind of way, which is weird and probably intentional, but probably just because it is like so militaristic in, in its simplicity and stylization. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that militaristic idea for sure. So we've talked a lot about the Atreides. We've talked quite a bit about Kaladin, which is their home world that they're giving up to rule over Arrakis, the most valuable planet ever. But let's talk about the family. The family we all know and love, the Harkonnens, who have been controlling Arrakis for several decades uh, and are now kind of at the center of this plan to have the Atreides take it over. So the Emperor will get jealous and invade and destroy the Atreides. The heart, it's, it's very complicated. But um, Yeti Prime is their homeworld. Stellan Skarsgård plays Baron Harkon, Harkonnes, who's uh, the Harkonnens, Baron Harkonnens. I'm losing my... Baron Harkonnen? Bear Harkonnen, there we go. A lot of words happening. Um, so we've got Selen Skarsgård, Dave Batista as his nephew, Raban. And I just love this family. It's just so strange, so bizarre, and such a different direction than David Lynch's version, but also a lot of similarities, I think, as well, which uh, is sort of interesting. So thoughts on the grotesque, but ever amazing, Selen Skarsgård as Baron Harkonnen. I just like never want to see it again, you know, and, and that's like exactly what they're going for. Right. I just the whole time uh, his like weird floaty thing. I never it's it's horrific. That's that's nightmare fuel. And also like Dave Batista. I don't ever have to see Dave Batista again. Nothing against him. I just don't want to see him. I, it, it's wow. personally. Wow. Um. Mm. I will say one thing. I love Stellan Skarsgård. I love him. He's a phenomenal actor. If you just hire a fat actor instead of putting an actor in a fat suit, stop it. Just stop. See, I thought this was going to come up and I do. Sam generally agree with that ethos. Uh, I think it though is interesting that like, I think this is really interesting exaggeration of his physical form because it does have the kind of like mandatory sort of looking for mandatory like semiotics of like excess and wealth and power of just like the the opulence of it him being you know someone who is uh like indulgent and therefore um is like on the heavier side which of course isn't true of 
all people. It's it's just like a semiotic thing. But also he's obviously a visibly like strong, like huge figure. Like th- there's a lot of tone, a lot of muscle to it. So though though it is something of a, a, a something of a fat suit for lack of well that let's call it what it is. It is something of a fat suit. But it is kind of toned in a way that makes him menacing rather than like I I I don't know. I think it illustrates like power almost in a way. Uh, and and not not to validate fat suits in general in the industry, but like I think this one's a little bit different. I think it gets at both that kind of like presumed enshrined in power opulence and also being a genuinely frightening and titanic figure. Yeah, I mean I I get what you're saying. I just like I don't know. It's one of those things where it's like, if you say it's okay now, is it okay at another moment if you do the same thing? Like, how far can we take it? I suppose it depends, but yeah. I don't know. But I mean, like, they did the same thing kind of with Colin uh, Farrell in the, the the new Batman with the, the penguin fat suit. And like, I just, I, I as a fat person, I never want to see a fat suit ever again. I'm just like really exhausted by it. And I, and I totally get it. But, you know, I think that there probably could have been actors who could be fat and muscular that could have also done this role. So, like, nothing against Stellan at all, because he's, you know, phenomenal. I'm just, like, tired of seeing it. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective I didn't think about when, you know, thinking about this role. And I think, for me, what struck me of how they designed him was the different silhouettes that he has. I think that is what... He's not just a fat guy sitting with suspenders that make him float. Um, he has this enormous cloak that goes down as he has this, like anti-gravity belt that allows him to, you know, float around. And so I think they do a really good job of changing the way that he looks um, to impose kind of these different senses of power, which I thought was, was pretty interesting. What's going on with his back? Like he's got like wires. What? I think that's like the implant for the like floating thing. Oh, Okay. Um, also really love too, and I didn't catch this the first time. And it's so obvious when you see this one shot when he's just like wiping his like bare head. This character is so clearly modeled after um, Brando's Kurtz, uh, Colonel Kurtz in Apocalypse Now. Mm-hmm. I think it's absolutely intentional and really striking and and very apt in that way. I was waiting. So when I watched the original Lynch Dune, Sting famously plays the Baron's nephew, mm-hmm. who is like another evil character. And I thought I'm now just I was like just like doing a quick search. And this character wasn't actually introduced in the first half of the new Dune. I thought I was like, there has to be the Sting's character. I want to see who they have play this character. But it sounds like Austin Butler, mm-hmm. who I've never heard of is going to play him. And I hope he does justice because Sting is on another... If you've if you've never seen Lynch's Dune and don't want to watch it, at least watch these scenes with Sting because it is hilarious. People were uh, saying they wanted to see Harry Styles be in this role. Oh my God, that would be the perfect 2022 <laughs> Sting equivalent. Oh man. So through the Harkonnens, we're really um, introduced to the plight of the Fremen, uh, the desert folk native 
ish to Arrakis. Um, this is sort of the third party at play in the plot of Dune. These folks who are in rebellion against the Harkonnens, they don't really care so much about the taking of spice per se, but it's more of these colonizers coming in and destroying their way of life. Seems like they're okay with making deals to an extent. They just want to be left alone and not targeted and to just be generally ignored and to live their way of life. Uh, the Fremen are really interesting uh, group of characters. Part two is really where we're going to learn a whole lot more about their culture. I'm so excited to see what Villeneuve has up his sleeve when depicting the places where they live, the technology they develop, and diving deeper into the mythologizing that has been done about the prophetic figure um, that will come and deliver the Fremen uh, from Arrakis to eventually basically conquer the galaxy is sort of the machinations at play. And so I think there's a really interesting idea of the like the white savior that Herbert's playing with in relation that kind of trope in relation to the Fremen and sort of like examining that trope. But before we go any deeper kind of with that thoughts on the Fremen, the design and their place in the world of Dune and also on the planet of Arrakis. I was like, expect or like, yeah, I didn't think was that great was the fact that on all of the marketing posters that I was seeing everywhere, it's Timothy Chalamet and Zendaya mm -hmm. star in Dune. And I think I sort of read some like other people's uh, issues with this too. I mean, so the only depictions until the very, very end that you get of Zendaya's character, Chani, Chani, mm -hmm. how's Chani, yes. Chani is just shots of Zendaya turning and like posing across a desert landscape. And in the original story, basically Paul is seeing her, correct me if I'm wrong, Connor, but essentially he sees her in visions. And so these scenes in the movie are representative of those visions uh, that he's going to have in the, the, the visions of the person he's going to meet. Uh, in his future. And so I understand that the movie is trying to reflect that and just have Zendaya like act this character as representative visions. But to try to promote your movie and being like, this person is going to have a huge role in this movie, I thought was misleading and didn't really do what I feel like just like the justice that Chani is a character should ultimately have in part two. And I know that there's so much more that will part two will explore in the Fremen, but it, I was just like, maybe give her more to do. Like, I don't know. I, I kind of took issue with that, but I, I know that it's connected to how her character is introduced in the original story as just dreams and visions. But it's like, I feel like we can do a little better than like, I don't know, just like wordless poses that she's asked to do in front of the desert landscape. Like give her at least a chance to have a little bit more substance, even in these sort of visions of the future or change your marketing. I don't know. <laughs> I think it's an interesting point, Christine, you brought up about the marketing. And I know they had Zendaya do a lot on TikTok as well. Uh, from what I read, that was like a pretty big part of like the marketing effort. It's tough because I think it plays into the like, we can't, can we trust all of these visions, which comes into play later with another Fremen character, um, Janice, Janice, um, who Timothy Chalamet thinks will be a guide and a friend, but turns out to be 
kind of a foe he has to conquer, but kind of serves the same purpose as well as prophecy kind of, you know, does in different ways, cuts both at ways of the sword. Um, but I wonder like if they didn't market Zendaya, would it had a weaker box office too? Like I think is like, what, what's the trade-off value I think is kind of what that makes me think of. It's also interesting in the sense too, that like, we know this is a part one. Uh, we, if you're familiar at all with the trajectory of the story, then you know that her character and the Fremen are going to play a much more crucial role in the second one. And these are also, Connor, as you mentioned, like inconsistent and uninformed visions that he's just having. So they're just for him to interpret rather than the broader context of who that person is and where it's heading. Uh, Whether or not that does Zendaya as an actress credit, uh, I don't know. But within the context of the role and the structure of this story and the way it's playing out between these two films, I find it to be measured in a way that feels pretty thoughtful but but it does rob her of a lot of opportunity to be bigger than than that within this individual film i guess i totally i totally see that but i also think that with a part one that wasn't guaranteed with a part two they had it and they're sort of i think approaching this narrative that it maybe addresses uh, colonialism in a little more nuanced way than, say, the previous film to, I guess, use the Fremen character as like a marketing ski or like device, I don't think does justice to and being like, look, this will be to come. I, I Maybe I'm just being like, like too picky, but it just seemed a little disingenuous, especially if the idea is to examine this story through like a, a, a colonial lens. Yeah, you're not wrong because though I know where this is going uh, in this in this particular film, the way that you framed it, and you're not wrong in in this way in particular. It is it is sort of like an exoticism of this culture that uh, yeah, perhaps it's like, yeah, it's just perhaps not handled as well. Yeah, that's a, that's a really both, good point. She's used it both device and to your point, Dave. Yeah, like adding right, sort of like this sort of exotic is exoticism uh, within uh, sort of story framework and the marketing framework, especially because House Atreides and House Harkonnen are are coded as pretty exclusively white, uh, as opposed to say the Fremen. Um, so yeah, to have them only kind of become the cultural figures and like fully fleshed out beyond like. Uh, Paul's visions of them at the at the very end of what is a two-part movie that will presumably do them justice down the road within this individual film yeah I I, I can see how the optics and and ideas of that uh perhaps aren't so great um on their own within the context of this as a standalone film yeah and I'm curious you know I would assume that Villeneuve had absolutely no say on the marketing aside from what he could say in interviews so I think that's another interesting angle too of like however thoughtful his screenplay could be and his intentions as a director, um, really Warner Brothers controls how it's marketed at the end of the day. How, how movies are marketed, I, I'm fascinated, really fascinated mm-hmm. by, um, and I feel like would be a whole other, other really interesting discussion. I was curious to get everyone's thoughts on the planting Messiah narratives on Dune as a way to protect future lineages kind of, you know, who would might need them. And this is something that Bene Gesserit have done on 
countless worlds, um, planting these Messiah narratives, hoping that one day it would serve useful to whoever the potential Messiah figure, the Hizatch-Kazawak, however it's pronounced, would be. And I think that's a really interesting direction to take it in and something that we see Paul be confused about, kind of angry about, but then kind of take advantage of, which is a really interesting part of his character throughout the book, the back half of the book. And so I guess what are your thoughts on, I mean, this kind of goes beyond just Bill News version, but uh, this use of planting Messiah narratives on Arrakis. I'm curious to kind of get your guys' thoughts on this plot point of the Benny Gesserit scheme. It feels like a really interesting time for this interpretation of the narrative. Uh, it does definitely feel as though this is, it feels to me as though this first movie is setting us up for the understanding that this is going to be very hard to explain because it's an extremely layered concept that uh, again, going back to benevolent colonization, um, that, that arrest, resting all one's hopes upon, uh, someone who is part of a, an institutional framework of colonization is ultimately a uh, false and, uh, and, and does not actually benefit uh the people that are involved as far as the 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 fremen and everything um and i think a lot of that doesn't unravel toward the end of the movie i mean we do have that interaction where paul is forced into combat uh with another member of the fremen toward the end of the film that is not only as is their culture uh you know when you when you kill someone you lose your own life in a way. And I think that that is the beginning. The end of this movie is the beginning of Paul Atreides shedding that part of himself in order to become immersed in and elevate without so much uh, influence and so much, um, yeah, like so much of a messianic complex falling into the framework of people uplifting themselves. Which I mean, spoiler alert, that is where the second movie's going to go. But, <laughs> but, but it does, it, it's why the, the end of this movie is a nice end cap because he has lost a bit of himself to this struggle and to the notion that him being propped up as a messiah is probably not a good idea to begin with. And I think what I noticed on the second watch is that a lot of the film is about Paul thinking about trying to break away from, maybe lean into plants and destiny. Star Wars, man, that is destiny to a T. You, Luke <laughs> is destined to destroy the Death Star, turn his father back to the light, even though he committed a galactic genocide and everything is okay. Like that's, I mean, that's just Star Wars. It's a much kind of more simplified, straightforward, structured kind of story where Dune, I think, is incorporating a lot more complex layers in the idea of mythology and thinking about destiny. And so I noticed that there, were, there was a lot of time devoted where there's not a whole lot of dialogue in this movie uh, for how long it is to Paul thinking about what ties him to the Benny Gesserit plan, what he wants to do, Lady Jessica, his mom's role in it. Um, you know, Duke Leto calls her out on, oh, well, while you were walking in shadows, I still trusted you. So there's like lots of layers of people thinking about what path should they be on and how do we rebel against said paths. And I wonder if a lot of time is devoted to that because Dil- Villeneuve he himself is fascinated by this particular narrative or wants to spend time with it only because it makes me think of Blade Runner 2049 and the like uh, Ryan Gosling's character initially thinking that in many ways he is uh, like a chosen one in many ways. And there is a lot of narrative complexity around him wrestling with like whether or not he is sort of this messianic figure 
in a way. And then the sudden realization that he's not and how he confronts that. And, and I think that's a theme that Villeneuve seems to be really interested in exploring. Yeah, ego death seems to be at a very consistent through line in his work, which is very cool. Yeah, and I think that, you know, he's been in interviews, he said that, you know, Villeneuve said that he was in love with Dune since he was like 14 or 15 years old. And so I wonder how much the book impacted him as a creator. Like, I assume it's like probably a part of the five things that made him want to become a filmmaker, the five stories that he read or, you know, pieces of art that he interacted with. And so I think it's so cool that someone who's so passionate about the book was able to bring it to such a, in my opinion, full and realized vision and still keeping intact all of these themes and all of these ideas that are critical to what makes the the plot of the first book so interesting. And I was just so happy to see that this through line of the Bene Gesserit planting mythologies was kept intact. And I think in a really thoughtful way in this first part, and hopefully they stick the landing in part two, which fairly certain they will. Well, we've covered a lot with Dune. I think we hit pretty much all the major forces and characters. Um, Duncan Idaho. Oh, the worst name in all of sci-fi, perhaps. What? That is awesome. Uh, what's What's the character's name in Point Break? Is it Johnny Utah? Johnny Utah, yeah. It's, it's, it's really, really close. It's such a Johnny Utah. And Point Break and Dune couldn't be more opposite movies. <laughs> Also, I mean, this is like a movie, like, you know, I, I could see where that could be, you could be critical of that, but we're also dealing in a, a world that isn't Earth, however long into the future, and people are still named Paul and Jessica. Duncan Idaho, I think, is fine. But also really love, too. I mean, um, Momoa, Momoa's great. He's a natural talent. He's fantastic. He he oozes charisma. And it's such a great choice for this character because so much of the other characters' performance are so restrained and so, like, dialed into their, like, bureaucratic place within the story. Whereas this just allows that Duncan Idaho, via Jason Momoa, is just, like, the coolest person in this whole fucking universe. Which is so great. I think this is his best performance out of anything I've seen him in. I think he just absolutely knocks it out of the park. And it's nice to have someone who's a friend to Paul. Because everyone, like, it, it's a serious job. He's a prince. You know, he's a, a duke's son. He'll inherit the most precious planet in the universe. And so it's nice that he has a buddy, someone he can run up to and hug and kind of talk to more of like a peer than necessarily um, kind of some sort of hierarchical relationship. And he's always so excited to see him. He is my boy. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so good. He says it like five times. Him not having a beard, though, is like it. It shook me. <laughs> it was unsettling. But then he said, the, my boy. And it distinctly reminded me of that part in Justice League when he's like, my man. And yeah. I was like, all right, I'm in it again. <laughs> I thought it was looking real cute and doing that. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was a good look, but maybe not. Maybe not. And he definitely has, I think he has the best fight scene in the whole uh, movie with his self-sacrifice of Paul, Jessica, and uh, Keen's. You know, just like taking on all the Sadukar in a hallway, um, coming back after being stabbed through the chest, like just a total badass figure. And I'm sorry, Dave, that I uh, neglected to bring up Duncan Idaho at this point. He's a pivotal member of Team Atreides. And Josh Brolin also doesn't have a whole lot to do, but certainly is a standout side role as Gurney Halleck, um, who has some really great lines. His scene in the big invasion 
it's, I mean, like his extended part in that was so fucking cool. When the bagpipes came out, I was like, yo, what the fuck is this movie doing? <laughs> Putting that bagpipe scene. I started to get emotional. I'm like, I'm what? Why am I getting emotional for this? <laughs> yeah. And I think that's, I'm so happy you brought up the bagpipes because that is like a visual cue for House of Trades. And I think uh, an audio cue rather and tying them to earth as well in, and the bullfighting, I think also does that as well. Things that kind of, we know in the Dune universe, earth is gone. They've lost where Earth is through various calamities and catastrophes. And and so I think that it's interesting that there are lots of like places to remind us of Earth and humanity's start. So Gurney Halleck, definitely a standout uh, character. And of course, as we said a lot, he has more to do in part two. So I, I can't wait to see more Brolin. Always enjoy a good Josh Brolin. He was sounding a bit like Thanos in this. Um <laughs> More so than maybe in some other roles, which I just thought was kind of funny. Uh, damn it. I just walked away while while you guys were having this discussion. I just got back. Apologies. Uh, Josh Brolin's great. I love Josh Brolin. You have no idea what they're like. They're brutal. It's such a, like, overstated line. But um, but also, there's the moment, too, when the Harkonnens are invading and they're starting to bomb, starting to bomb all the ships. And you just see, like... Like, it's, like, the first smile he has in the entire... Even after, like, Oscar Isaac has said, like, Something about him smiling, like be sure to smile when they're greeting someone. He's like, I am smiling. And it's Josh Brolin with his usual like stone face. But when the bombs are going off and it's like shit's getting real and it's time for him to be a warrior, he's kind of just like, all right, here we go. Which is just such a good role for Brolin. I think that scene too, I'm glad we're, we're discussing the attack, the Harkonnen and Sadukar attack on Arakeen, the, cap, the trade capital on Arrakis. This movie has does such a good job of building its visual vocabulary and an understanding of the mechanics of the sci-fi world, where the, they do knife-to-knife combat because regular ballistics don't work on shields because they move too fast. So knives have to move slow and swords through the shield so that way it turns red and you can make contact with armor or skin. When they're dropping bombs, it's amazing to see like the missiles just kind of like slowly freeze and it slows down to penetrate the barrier and then it explodes the ship explodes from inside the shield which then deactivates the shield and then the whole explosion kind of happens after that it's just so once again so meticulous and this world is so intricately built and managed that scene was awesome so cool well what for a while has been kind of like a steady tone of like not a whole lot of action happening. It's been a while. And then all of a sudden there's this eruption of flame and invasion. And also I love when the Sadukar land where they just effortlessly slowly float down from the ships. They don't have jetpacks. They don't like in this world, there's some anti-gravity device that allows troops to just slowly descend. And it's so menacing and so otherworldly and uncomfortable. It's like a great effect which I don't think is like mentioned in the book. So um, if it is, if, it, if it's not, then certainly credit to Villeneuve's team for kind of developing that effect. Yeah. And also along those lines, we discussed, we alluded to earlier, the sense of scale in this movie, which is like unprecedented, like the, the sense of scope and depth and sheer size of some things in this movie is like jaw dropping. There's of course, um, the spiced harvesting sequence that we we alluded to earlier, where uh, they're on Arrakis and they're lear- they're observing how the spices mine. They're seeing the worm come from like miles away, and just the sheer size, the implied size 
through the the like jaw dropping special effects in this sequence. It's, it's like the most harrowing part of the movie, especially because it does so play with size and scale. Yeah, the the worms are just something else, and it kind of reminds me of Jaws too. Of like we're hiding, you see the ripples through the sand. Everything is led up to how these worms work, except for seeing them. We even see some of their teeth in the Chris knives, but we don't see the actual creature itself until like know, maybe about you know third, almost halfway through the movie, a little less than halfway. And the design is just, there's so, if you look up, you know, Dune sandworm art online, there's so many interpretations. And I think this one is an incredibly successful interpretation of the sandworm. Shy halud. <laughs> and we even get some teases of what the Fremen are capable of doing with the worms, which is honestly one of my favorite scenes in the Lynch movie. Um, hands down, I love that scene where um, Kyle McLaughlin learns how to ride the worm. Spoilers for part two, that will happen. We cannot wait for the ride, riding of the sand, like epic riding of the sandworms. It is. <laughs> like Beetlejuice again. Okay, Sam, I think you should just create a TikTok that's only Beetlejuice and Dune re-edits. I'm up for that. I'll do it. Also, why wouldn't you just call Arrakis Spice World? Spice Just up saying. your life, baby. Yeah, <laughs> truly. I'm sure I, I, I'm not on the TikTok world, but I'm sure there's probably a ton of Spice Girls Dune content out there. And if there's not, there should be. Well, any other final thoughts on Deneville News 2021? My opinion, masterpiece, Dune. Any other thoughts or you know parts of the movie that we haven't talked about yet that we want to discuss? I'd say if you've not seen it, it is slow methodically but undeniably slow uh but that's because it has a lot of story to tell and a lot of ground to cover uh if you have the patience for that kind of story then it may be up your alley if not i would say that uh, approach with caution because it is demanding uh i found it more demanding actually the second time watching it than the first time i think i was really enchanted and fell into it the first time and allowed that it's, it's slower and more methodical pace guide me through it the second time i found that a little bit more not stilted, but um, perhaps overmeasured. It, it's it's almost like a movie that feels like you're watching episodes of a miniseries, which I, I can't say of many movies, um, which I do think is interesting. And I think it's the right choice for this, but uh, it is in that way demanding. So just a heads up going into it. Dave, I'm so glad you said that because when I made that comment at the beginning of like, if I saw this movie like five or six years ago, I would have not liked it. One, space i was like very anti-space things <laughs> i don't know why um and now like star wars is one of my favorite things so like i've definitely changed but also like how fucking slow this movie is i still struggle with things that are slow because i'm just like get to the point but it's worth it with this one damn that might have been the highest piece of praise i've ever heard you give on the podcast <laughs> <laughs> Kelly Reichar, eat, 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 eat. <laughs> oh, no. Kelly Reichar, showing up. First worm. Her most recent movie, Showing Up, just premiered at Cannes. Uh, I don't know if it's getting you buzz. Probably not. Uh, but I'm proud of her. She'll keep churning them out and, you know, dividing America. <laughs> One movie at a time. <laughs> Uh, do we have a projected date for June 2? Fall 2023. Okay, nice. So I think they're filming soonish, if not now. 
So who knows? Hopefully they'll hit at state. So two years exactly, pretty much is the goal after Dune Part One. And I hope they do a IMAX two double feature. I really, I think they'd be missing out if they didn't do that because I would for sure go do that. If there was like a meal between Part mm-hmm. One and Two, I feel like IMAX could create a whole, or like the theaters could create an entire experience. Like I want like a like a sit down din during the intermission between Part One and Two. Uh, I would say also, if you haven't seen this uh, and you're going into it expecting a full story, uh, know that it is part one of two, at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, does say, like that's another frustrating thing about these reviews. I was just reading so many online. I was trying to seek out bad reviews just out of curiosity. And like so many of them were like, I got to the end of the movie and then all of a sudden it's over. And it's like, I'll see you next time. And I'm like, what? And it's like, well, it also says Dune Part 1 at the beginning of the goddamn movie. So what are you talking about? And I also think it ends in a really good place because, like, it does... We're learning so much about the Fremen all of the sudden. Uh, Zendaya, as we said, has been, like, a largely absent figure as far as the character, but alluded to, and now is, like, coming coming to into her own at the very end. And it ends with, like, what is what is the line? Like, like... Uh, it's not like, see you next time, but it's close. It's like the story isn't over or something. So it's pretty clear that there's more to your come. Advent- oh, go ahead. Your adventure's just beginning. Something there like you that. go. Yeah. So like, it's so obvious that there's more to come. I don't know why people were shocked or pissed off about that. But uh, if you're totally in the dark about this movie, know that there's more to come before you watch this one. Even though it will tell you that when the movie starts. Well, with that, I think we'll put a uh, cap on Dune. I'm sure that, you know, we'll, I, I would hope that Villeneuve will come up again in the future. Certainly one of my favorite directors working right now. So I'd love to talk about another Villeneuve movie, Arrival. It's also a movie I loved. Would be curious to revisit that one. But yeah, so anybody, any aside from our Movie John podcast network, where you can check out many wonderful movie podcasts. Uh, anything else folks want to plug before we head out? One of my biggest fears, this is not, I'm not promoting anything. I'm no, go, go for it. I'm just promoting my own stupid thoughts. My biggest fear is that I'm going to rewatch Arrival and like not be moved. This movie I've still only watched once, but I hold in such high regard. It's one of those movies I fear watching again because I don't want to lose the magic that I thought it really had and the emotional weight that I thought it had when I first watched it in theaters. That movie has some good tricks and I don't know how they would play a second time. I'm, um, I'm with you, Christine. My biggest fear, Christine, brown recluses. <laughs> I don't like them. Do tell, well, tell me more. They're spiders. <laughs> They're really poisonous and they terrify me. I just thought we were sharing. So No, you know, I, yeah. They um, cause necrosis. Watch out for those guys. Mm-hmm. Oh God. Okay. Where do they live? Or am I going to encounter one? <laughs> I, but I, so here's the thing. I'm so afraid of them that I need to like know everything about them. And then as soon as I Google it, I start having a, like a panic attack. Um, and for some reason, I, like I read this thing that was like, well, if you have sheets that haven't been used in a while, they're probably no. there. And I was like, oh my God, uh. I know. I was like, what the fuck are you saying? That's not even true. Um, it's like inciting then, panic. Like, <laughs> what? like, I, I couldn't sleep for three days. Are you talking, <laughs> I didn't like, talk to my therapist about it. Oh my God. Are we talking like sheets that get folded, like put away in like a drawer? Yes. Uh, I think, I yeah, I think we're fucked. But it's then over. I, but then I looked 
And it's like, no, they're really only in like crawl spaces or where, where it's like really dark. And which like, every home has, I think still. I know one time I asked Matt, I was like, hey, Matt, do you think there are any brown recluses uh, at our job? And he was like, yeah, probably. And I had to go home. I couldn't handle it. I went home early. Yeah, I saw a picture of a spitting cobra in the articles Google. Google just recommends me bullshit articles and was like, family found spitting cobra in their prayer room and didn't know what to do. (laughs) It's like, I mean, I don't have a prayer room, but I would be terrified if a spitting cobra came up into my place of residence. Was that spitting cobra or spinning cobra? I read spitting. The spitting cobra sounds pretty cool too. Yeah, that'd be dope. Sounds like trouble either way. Yeah. <laughs> so folks, uh, write us an email if you don't want to tell us about a movie. Please just tell us all of your deepest, darkest fears. We, with, like, if you would like, with your consent, we can read out the email. But if you just want to tell us to get it off your chest, we'll 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 keep it between us and you. <laughs> and you can find us at butterwiththatpodcast at gmail.com and on Facebook and Instagram at butterwiththat and butterwiththat1 on Twitter. I have one really quick plug, actually. Um, yeah. This is something I haven't talked about on the show before, but uh, uh, an organization that I'm very passionate about, a contributor to, and one that I would check out, or would recommend that folks check out. It's called The Ochre Project. Uh, via their website, The Ochre Project is a collective that seeks to address the global crisis faced by Black trans people by bringing them home-cooked, healthy, and culturally specific meals and resource to Black trans people wherever they can reach them. Uh, they accept a lot of donations, a uh, really great organization that I've been um, keeping my eye on for several years and would recommend you have a look at. That is the ochreproject.com, that uh, the O-K-R-A project.com. I've never heard of that, Dave, so thanks for the heads up. That sounds like a really cool organization, something I would definitely want to look into. Uh, great organization. Yeah, check them out. Well, with that, let's uh, say goodbye to the Sands of Arrakis. We're going to be catching you next time at some other new sandy location. Probably hot, probably sweaty, and have a good whatever. Look at that worm! This has been a Movie John podcast.